meeting is two 10-minute speakers, the first of which will speak on the second tradition, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker to share on the second tradition is Dayton. Alcoholic Dayton. My sobriety date is April 9th, 1990. My home group is the Atlantic Group. My sponsor is David B. and I'm living in steps 10, 11, and 12. I have a body that can't tolerate alcohol and a mind that won't leave it alone. Um, I'm grateful that I'm so active in AA after all these years. Um, for those of you keeping track, I've only vomited two times in 32 years, which given the fact I used to drink so much toxic amounts of alcohol, it was common for me to vomit. So I'm, I'm talking about the second tradition, and the traditions on the, on the shade are really just the names of the traditions. Those are the short form version of the tradition. So at this meeting, at the beginning of each month, we actually read the long form of the tradition. And the long form of this tradition is, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express, express himself in our group conscience. Now, if you're astute, you may notice that the long form is shorter than the short form. <laughs> and that's AA. And there is, there is an explanation for that. Um, anybody after the meeting that wants to talk to me about it, I'd be glad to explain it to you. But I want to cover a little bit of ground tonight. I want to talk about the Atlantic Group and how we have a steering committee. And I've been involved with this group since the very beginning, since the spring of 1994. Um, so I've been able to see how the group evolved over time. When we started off, the group wasn't as structured as it is right now. Um, they got good speakers and the group got a reputation and the, the structure kind of developed over a period of time. On anniversary night in March, we read the history of the group, the, the printed version. It says that most meetings start with a resentment on a coffee pot, but that's not the case of the Atlantic group. Actually, not quite true. <laughs> um, what happened when I got sober in the early 90s is a big book wasn't being used in New York. There were big book meetings, but everything was based out of the 12 and 12. And people started going to Joe and Charlie seminars and brought the big book back to New York, other places. And so there was a meeting on 50th Street, the Monday night big book meeting that Van and Peggy went to, Bonnie went there, there were a few other people that went. And it was a great meeting. We listened to the Joe and Charlie tapes. But what happened at some point, and some of the members thought that it should become an open meeting and that only alcoholics would participate. And that became a bit, you know, that was well thought out. And so it became an open meeting. What happened is <clears throat> then people started sharing. Like eating disorders are a deadly thing and people need recovery from it. But people with eating disorders were going to the meeting and identifying as overeaters and sharing about the cake in the refrigerator, which to them, I know that's life or death, but I'm an alcoholic. The cake in the refrigerator doesn't really play in my mind. So it was against that backdrop that Van and Peggy and three other people started the Atlantic Group. And so we have a steering committee, which means that the we don't have business meetings for the group. We have members of the steering committee who up until recently were past overall chairs of the meeting that handle the, the, the business of the group. And basically, we just want to make sure that we can carry the message to the newcomer. And so we had the first Bill Baldwin, the late Bill Baldwin, I can say his last name. He was the first chair of the group. And then Van, Peggy, and Norman. And then at that point, we had six months term. So by April of 1997, we had eight people on the steering committee, and the group was getting restless. And an emergency meeting was called to dissolve the steering committee. And Vince was at that meeting. I don't know if anyone else was there, but it was, it was raucous, okay? Um, no chairs flew, but like if chairs could have flown, they would have flown. I mean, people were really on each side, steering committee, no steering committee. And Urban legend has it that it passed by one vote to keep the steering committee. It was actually five votes to keep the steering committee. And, and something interesting happened at that point because we, we, we had been growing, but we weren't that big yet. And 
about a third of the group left, including Bill B, who was my sponsor. I was, you know, I was, I said, I want to stay with the Atlanta group. And they, they started a meeting into action, which is a very good meeting. It still exists. I don't think they've come back live yet, but it's a good meeting. It meets someone. So a lot of ex-Atlanta group people went to, into action. But the crazy thing is, is right after that decision is when this group really started to grow. And right now we're getting about almost 300 people, but there was a time that this meeting in the, you know, I think 2012, 2015 area, we were getting sometimes over 500 people a night. And we, we actually still have room that we can get out into the wings. So, you know, things went along swimmingly. I became an elected chair of the steering committee. I was the overall chair in 2003. And at that point, there was no rotation. It's either people died or moved, and there was, Van used to call it natural rotation. Back then, Van was a great guy. He loved this group with all of his heart, but he kind of ruled with an iron fist. And so those years, even the way of head of steering committee was kind of Van's way. And Van did pass away in 2006, and he was a great guy, believe me, but he really poured his soul in. But he didn't want any change. I think that's kind of what's happened with some of the older members of the steering committee is we don't want to see things change. So come 2008, people are getting restless again. And at this point, it's because there was no rotation. So at that point, we had a, our first group inventory, and we decided to expand the steering committee. And now instead of just the elected chairs and past overall chairs, we had the chairs of all the other meetings plus the service structure, intergroup, GSO. And so more people came to the steering committee meeting. And I think you know that the whole thing about get rid of the steering committee kind of died at that point because other people were going back like nothing's really happening there. You know, it's boring if anything. <laughs> um, and then also at that point, we developed kind of a rule that after 12 years you rotate off the steering committee, you become a senior board member. And what happened because people moved, unfortunately some people passed away, that rotation really wasn't happening. It wasn't until 2017 that I rotated off and, you know, so I think I was on a voting member for 15 years. Stacy, 2005, he's still a voting member. So. The rotation wasn't really working the way they envisioned it. And then last year, there was a bit more of a rumble. And it was interesting with that because it was mostly people, members who had been on the steering committee, they had shared other meetings and they saw how we operated. And at that point, the whole conversation about dissolving the steering committee was, was abandoned. It was like, how can we reform the steering committee? So last fall, there were new amendments put in place that now a steering committee member can serve for nine years instead of 12. The GSO, the intergroup rep, corrections and treatment and treasurer, they all get a vote now. And, and so basically we have more of the younger people making decisions and there are a lot of loopholes in it, but here's the thing that happened. They said that senior board members, which I am and Ron Black, we can no longer vote ever again because it used to be if, if a space opened up, a senior board member would rotate in, like right now, Bonnie and Ava, Pat, who have been senior, they're voting. Enter the elder statement and the bleeding deacon. And <laughs> so basically, Ron and I have had our vote taken away. And I think I have a quick minute to, it says in the 12 and 12, the elder statesman is the one who sees the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment fortified by considerable experience is sound and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines patiently awaiting developments. I always pictured an elder statement as being old, but when this was written besides Bill and Bob, no one had more than 14 years. So I guess technically I can qualify as an elder statement. And then it, it talks about the bleeding deacon. I'm not gonna read it because I'm running out of time, but right now I'm like 80% elder statement, 20% <laughs> leading deacon. I really don't want to see things change. The group also made a decision that we can change things like Lord's Prayer, group attire, singleness of purpose for another five years and then it has to be substantial unanimity. Okay, real quick, here comes my announcement, Olga, so I might go a little bit over. 
I've served as a church liaison for 15 years, which is too long to serve. I tried to resign a few years before the pandemic, and the church administrator said, absolutely not. Because I know with her when to pick up the phone and when to send an email. The church really bends over backwards to have us here. The staff, Chris, they don't need us, but we have a lot of support amongst the clergy in this church and the administrator, even though we're not part of this church, but they let us come upstairs. So in this group, we had a tradition that the overall chair, after their term, they would mop the Duke room where we serve coffee. So since COVID, Rich hasn't mopped the Duke room, Deborah and Matt. <laughs> the announcement is starting in March, they're going to be mopping because <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting coffee and cookies back. Now, one, one thing about that is the church administrator said there is no way we can bring food or drink into the room, so there are going to be monitors at the door. But if anyone sees someone in the room with coffee or food, be a Karen. Say, we cannot have that in here because we want to keep... Our, th keeping this space is more important than than the coffee and cookies. So the goodbye sign's been up for a while. I don't know how to sum this up, but we're getting coffee and cookies back. And one last thing, no generic Oreos. That's a group conscious of new people. Our second 10-minute speaker is Amanda. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, um, I'll start with the statistics. My sobriety date is August 20th, 2021. AG is my home group. Karen C is my sponsor. She's over there. Um, I have two sponsees. I've been through all the steps, and I do service. I fellowship. I keep myself in the middle of AA because that's what I have to do to stay sober. Um, and. I am currently shaking from being up here. I shake every time I get on the mic, and now that's every week. And I said yes, and I chose the service position that I have now to show my sponsees that I am pushing through fear, right? They see me go back to my seat every week shaking after being up here. Um, and it's just to show them that if I can push through fear to be of service, to everyone in this meeting who has helped me get and stay sober, then they can too. So Sung, thank you for asking me to speak. I don't know where you are. Um, and yeah, um, so let's see. If you saw how I grew up and knew my family and all that stuff, you wouldn't expect me to be an alcoholic, right? Um, very privileged, normal, like, life. Uh, parents are still together. Um, no fighting, really. Like, everything was good, as far as I knew, right? So, when I started drinking in high school and blacking out every weekend, no one was really used to that. And, you know, I couldn't stop, because I've always been powerless. I blacked out the first weekend I started drinking. And, you know, I was told in high school that I was an alcoholic. I refused to accept it. Um, and that's the theme throughout me trying to get sober up until this past year and a half is I couldn't accept it. I always knew I was an alcoholic. I just didn't care. I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care if it was family, friends, a stranger, if I was able to drink and use other substances, which are a big part of my story, then whatever, then I'm an alcoholic. And no one could stop me. And it was like that for a while of me knowing and not caring and hurting my family and hurting my friends. And, you know, being in the city at 18, blacking out, living alone on the streets. I'm like, I like still can't go to Amsterdam Avenue on the Upper West Side because I still get like triggered. I don't know who I talk to. I would wake up the next morning needing to drink um, to go outside because I didn't know what I said, what I did, 
if people would see me and they would recognize me, I had no idea and I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know what I did the night before. Um, and so I did that for about three years um, until, you know, I was 21 and that's when my sobriety journey started. And I didn't get sober until 26 and that was a God moment. Um, I, or 25 actually, and it was a God moment. I was in the hospital, because I always ended up in the hospital. It wasn't unlikely for me to be in the hospital. It was just, you know, I thank God I wasn't handcuffed to the hospital bed, because that has happened before. Um, you know, like rehab, psych wards, hospitals, everything happened from 18 to 25. Um, and I was sitting in a hospital bed with my mom, and I just, I don't even remember which hospital it was, because I've been to a lot. And I remember looking at her and just saying, like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and that wasn't me saying that. That was definitely God. Because, like I said, I've known since I was in high school that I was an alcoholic. Um, and I didn't care. And then all of a sudden, I cared. And that, like, I don't know how to explain it other than it wasn't me. It was a higher power. Um, and from there, you know, I went into a sober living where they made me go to meetings and everything, which I've done before in the past and, you know, didn't do it fully. But this time, because I was actually serious and cared, I got my sponsor, Karen, the first meeting I was at after treatment. Um, that was also a God moment. I saw a friend of mine in that meeting who I hadn't seen in years. Thank you. And she was like, I want to introduce you to my friend Karen. And I was like, okay. And then Karen's so nice and kind. And, you know, I wasn't going to hesitate picking a sponsor. I just wanted to get into the work, into the steps. And the steps is really what I needed to do. I've never been through all the steps before. And they're truly life-changing, really. Um, it's a guide to how to live life. And... You know, she told me to pray and meditate, and I rolled my eyes, but I did it anyway. And that's what I do a lot now. When she tells me things, I'll roll my eyes, but I do it anyway. <laughs> or, like, I'll vent about it to someone else and do it anyway. You know, as long as I'm not drinking and I'm doing what she tells me, and I have that willingness, um, that will keep me sober today and help me pass the message along to anyone else, especially other women and my two sponsees, and, you know, I relapsed a lot um, my first, well, actually this time back with like a year and a half, I was relapsing a lot, and I don't know why I chose to come to AA and like take it seriously, but I'm happy I did, and I'm happy I listened. I don't listen to anyone and you know I like to do the opposite of what people tell me to do right um, but I really had to put my ego aside and I did you know um, I put my ego aside standing up here tonight thinking about the newcomer or the girl with seven days back that needs a friend or a hand or help you know, that's who I'm here for today speaking and not worried about me shaking or what I look like. It's about passing the message of hope. And, you know, I still call three women every day like I've been doing since day one. That's something that has changed um, my life. Some of those women that I called in my first 90 days are still my best friends. We all got a year together. We all have over a year now together. And now they have sponsees, I have sponsees, and that's only because Karen told me to. And I rolled my eyes, and then I did it, you know. Um, and I, you know, would pray the best that I could. I didn't know prayer or meditation. I wasn't religious. So what is it, like, speaking? Okay, I know how to talk. So I just, like, started talking to the wall or whatever. And that's turned into prayer, and I got into a routine. And now in my life today, when I'm stressed about work or in a situation where I don't know what to do, I don't react right away. 
and cause a scene or make a decision I might regret later. I call three women and I pray and then I'll probably call some more women um, and then I'll call my sponsor and I still won't do anything. There's a lot of work for me to do to stay sane and it's a lot of prayer and now I just, I do that though with everything that I'm questioning in my life or stressing out about or don't know the answer to. I know a higher power does and I have to trust that and have faith and I actually do have faith um, which is weird for me to say because I don't know if I ever did before um, and I never knew what God was or what he or she looked like or whatever but it didn't matter. I just knew it wasn't me. Right. It wasn't me calling the shots. Thank you. Um, and one of the most beautiful things that I've heard recently is I have a sponsee, and at first, you know, I ease them into the God thing. I don't want to scare them right away. And so in the beginning, I was like, do you believe in God? Like, what's your input on that? And she's like, I don't know. I was like, okay, well, like, try to, like, think about him occasionally. Like, you know, see what you, like, feel about it. And then I was listening to her speak uh, two weeks ago, and she used the phrase, God moment. And I was like, oh my God, it works, you know? And, like, literally, when I met her with, like, 30-something days, she didn't know or care about God or have faith, and now she's saying God moment. And it's just that little willingness that I had and that she had in that moment that really um, carries me along. So thank you. And our main speaker tonight is Tony. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm, I'm supremely grateful to be here tonight. Um, it's a privilege to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so thank you, uh, Preacher, for asking me to speak. Um, and I love, I love meeting in person. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really, I didn't really love Zoom, but it doesn't matter because Zoom worked. You know, and it was amazing the way everyone migrated over and the way we took care of ourselves really is miraculous. I'm proud to be part of an organization that can adapt like that. It's amazing. It blows me away. Um, because most times in the morning I can't decide, like, what socks to put on. So to be able to move like that is really spectacular. But to meet in person, you know, my experience is, is the two best meetings are the one before and the one after. And uh, before the meeting, I, I covered a lot of ground with people I just met or haven't seen in a long time, and hopefully after the meeting, the same will happen. And I love coming to meetings because meetings reorganize the patterns of my thinking. It's the most efficient way. Prayer does it, but prayer is just me. And sometimes I talk back to me. Um, uh, and sometimes uh, uh, I... I <laughs> Most times I talk very directly to God. I tell him exactly how I'm feeling. Um, but uh, nothing does it like a meeting. It's the most efficient way. You know, because prayer, prayer has become the background music to my life, but there's nothing like face-to-face -face talk. And, you know, that, that reminds me, it's nothing like face-to-face -face talk with a fellow recovering alcoholic. You know, uh, I should mention this. I should preface everything I'm saying, because... Uh, I remember uh, when the fourth edition to the big book came out in uh, 2001, and in the forward, toward the end of the forward, it says, modem to modem or face to face. And I have to tell you, I don't even know what it says after that, because when I read modem to modem, I said, it'll never happen. <laughs> it'll never happen. So that should be a, a preface to everything I'm going to say tonight. Um, because also, and this is just my experience, the first idea is always the drunk's idea. Um, and uh, that grace, that God space between thought and expression, uh, 
is really uh, miraculous. It's not, it's not too distantly, distantly related from uh, not picking up the first drink. You know, they're, they're like sixth cousins. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my mouth, I got a mouth on me. Um, um, and so when I am able to pause, it really is a wonderful experience. Like, my friend always says, God save, please save me from my opinions. And um, that's helped me out a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I just have to, uh, I was grateful to hear the speakers before me, uh, Dayton, uh, although I, I must confess, I've thrown up significantly more than twice in the 34 years I'm sober. Uh, but he mentioned Van, and uh, I, I knew Van uh, early on uh, from that big book, that Monday night big book meeting. And every time I come to an Atlantic group meeting, I think of him. And uh, it's a wonderful legacy because he, and we were talking about this before the meeting about kindness, Van always made me feel welcome. And, you know, as a drunk, I never had a sense of place. I never felt belonged. I never felt like I fit in. And he had a way of making me feel that I fit in. You know, and I'm supremely grateful for that. Um, uh, and, and Amanda mentioned not, not knowing what hospital she was in. And I have to tell you, I, I was in St. Vincent's Hospital. Uh, so many times, I don't know if anybody here remembers St. Vincent's Hospital, it's gone now like everything else in New York, but I was in St. Vincent's Hospital so many times that when I had 10 years sober, I had uh, arthroscopic knee surgery, and the same day surgery unit was through the emergency room, and when I walked into the emergency room, the nurse there knew my name. <laughs> she said, it's good to see you, Mr. DeMuro. Uh, we see your insurance has changed. And, and, and my wife said, how do you know her? And I said, I have no idea, which, you know, was kind of the truth. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think if, you know, if, <laughs> if you're winding up in hospitals because you're drinking, you probably got a drinking problem. You know, it's kind of like, a, God, you know, if I ever tell my story in a linear manner, again, it'll be the first time. But... Uh, I remember when I was counting days, I got, I got sober at the Path of Serenity in Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, where my new friend Cynthia got sober. And um, it was a really wonderful place. Uh, and I remember when I was counting days, um, Sunday night they had, a, they had a step meeting at like 6 o'clock. It was rotating. It was 1, 2, 3. And then uh, like 7.30 to 8.30 was uh, 4 to 12. Steps four to 12 rotating. And you know, I, when I was new, when, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was very sick. Let's just say, I, you know, it wasn't so much that like I saw the light, but I felt the heat, you know? And so I, I had nothing to do. So I just stayed, you know, from the first meeting to the second meeting, and there was a friend of mine, Pat. And uh, uh, I remember asking him, I said to him, Pat, Ann Landers runs this column. She used to run it every year, maybe twice a year. Um, Ten questions, are you an alcoholic? And I remember taking that test in my backyard of the house I grew up in, and uh, uh, <laughs> I took that test smoking a joint. And uh, 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 <laughs> and I negotiated the answers all the way down. Uh, and I, I came out with an acceptable uh, amount. I thought I answered yes to four, and I thought that was safe enough to look at the, you know, the results. And it says at the bottom, if you answer yes to two or more of these questions, you probably have a drinking problem. And I remember being so outraged, like, how could I answer yes to four and pass? And so I brought this up to my friend Pat. I said, Pat, I don't understand how this test works. I can't believe I answered yes to four questions and it means I have a drinking problem. And I hope I never forget his answer. He says, don't worry about it. Only people with a drinking problem take that test to begin with. <laughs> he said, and he did it just like this. He said, everybody else just turns the page and waits for tomorrow's column. You know, and that's when I was counting days. And that was when I thought like, man, these people in Alcoholics Anonymous, they do have the answer to everything. 
everything, you know. And so, um, anyway, um, I, um, you know, I grew up not too far from here, um, uh, across the river in Jersey City, um, as if you couldn't tell by the way I speak. Uh, and I grew up, um, it's interesting, um, one of the horrible, horrible things about alcoholism, I mean, the thing that is still excruciating to me, even when I think about it, is I had no language, none, to describe what was wrong with me until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. None. Like, you know, I, I often say that, like, who knew, like, when my mother said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. You know, who knew I was telling the truth? You know, but I didn't. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I always, maybe not always, uh, I like, but I like to say I didn't ever drink my first day of kindergarten, but I could have used one. Um, I kind of always felt, <laughs> thank you, Chris. I always felt, um, I always felt that anxious apartness. And again, you know, when you're like eight years old and you're six years old, there's no way you know it's anxious apartness. You just think it's disaster, you know? And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of times today I think it's disaster. Um, uh, <laughs> my wife once said to me, why do you think everything's a disaster? And I said, because it is. Um, but, you know, when you're young, you don't know what's happening to you. and you know, the best I can describe it now is um, I always had this this disease, this unsettling feeling in the pit of my stomach, um, this vague sense that it wasn't going to be okay, and that's as specific as it got. You know, this this vague notion that it was not going to be okay. And, uh, you know, um, and something, it's interesting, uh, like I said, where I grew up, uh, drinking was a completely socially accepted recreational activity for 12 years old. You know, when we were 12, we all got together and we all, like, right, we all threw like a dollar in the hat and we went to Lee's Liquor Store and we asked whoever was in front of Lee's liquor store to buy us a, you know, well, Ballantine was my drug of choice. You know, uh, a quart of Ballantine, a quart of Old English 800, uh, a, a quart of uh, Colt 45. I still remember the slogan, Colt 45, it works every time. <laughs> right? I mean, like, and Billy D. Williams on the billboard, you know, overlooking the Palisades, like, come on, it's Billy D. Williams. Um, so, so that's what we did, and I went along because I wanted to belong. And uh, everything in my body was really very, very silently telling me I didn't belong. And then something happened. Um, I went drinking with my friends in Washington Park. Not Washington Square Park, that came later on. Washington Park on the border of Jersey City and Union City. Uh, Union City was a wonderful town. <laughs> Let me tell you something, I loved Union City. Uh, <laughs> um, and something magical happened is when we started to drink, that feeling went away. You know, that, that is like, you know, the alcohol logic of my story, you know, is I always felt you know, like uh, I was too slow, too short, not quite smart enough, not quite tall enough, not quite fast enough, not quite athletic enough, not quite smart enough, not quite good looking enough, not quite thin enough. And when I took a drink, I didn't care. I felt like I belonged, you know. And I felt like my friends felt like I belonged. You know, um, I remember, um, again, I'm jumping around, but believe me, it's the best I can do. Um, uh, I remember one day when I was 
in the Holiday Cocktail Lounge on St. Mark's Place, uh, which was my favorite, my favorite bar. I went to school downtown, and uh, you know, right after school, I would, I would, uh, <laughs> you know, other kids were like, you know, I went to a pretty good school, and other kids were going to like, you know, I don't know, debating class or, or forensics, you know, or whatever. I was going to the holiday, you know, and it was important because I had to watch Oprah, Donnie, and Live at Five. You know, God forbid I miss them. Um, I, you know, that's when Donnie was the biggest star, you know. So uh, one night I was in the holiday with a friend of mine that, uh, it's interesting, my, my college years were a disaster. Um, and for a long time it bothered me until I realized why. It's because all the work that people normally do in college, like getting to know people and growing relationships, I never did, so I had to do it now. That's why I resented my college years, but now that I know that, I think, oh, I get it, I get it. But anyway, I remember we were in the back, and the Celtics were playing the Rockets in the NBA Finals. And I said to this guy, he was a good guy too, he was one of the guys, you know, no, when I told people I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, not one person said, you? Really? He was, the, he was the guy, actually. He said to me, it was probably after this incident, but he said to me one time, he said, look, there's something wrong with the way you drink. He said, and I made an appointment with the school psychiatrist for you, and you better show up because if you don't show up, I'll come and get you, because I know where you'll be, you know? Now that's a friend, you know? And um, God, those are the kind of friends I really did meet in Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, he wasn't a drunk, as I'll explain in a second. And we were watching the game, and as I just exhibited, he was a good dude, so I turned to him, I said, you ever feel like you don't belong? Right, you ever feel like you came from somewhere else and you were dropped here in the middle of everything, and you know you don't belong, and the people around you know you don't belong, but you just walk with your head down as fast as you can, knowing that everybody knows you don't belong. And he said, no. <laughs> you know, so I did the next best thing. I said, me neither. Um, you know, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous that I met people that said, yes, I know that feeling, you know? Um, and so I started to go through life like I probably, you know, mentioned 15 minutes ago, where um, alcohol became the solution to my living problem. And, uh, and that's okay. Like, if alcohol, I mean, let's, let's be honest. If, let's try and be honest. Uh, if alcohol today was the solution to my living problem, well, I would just drink. You know, it's kind of like surrender. You know, if surrender, like surrender is like a gift from God. Surrender is not an act of will. It's an act of grace. I was graced with surrender. I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. It's important for me to remember this, like, because if I could just surrender, because I, I want to surrender, well, I would just drink tonight and surrender tomorrow. You know, like, what does Dean Martin say? I mean, that's that old joke, you know, quitting drinking is the easiest thing in the world. I do it every night. You know, like, if I could just surrender tomorrow, I would surrender tomorrow. You know, but uh, it, my experience is it doesn't work like that, because, I, I mean, just... Just to back that up, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in August of 88, but I did not get sober until January of 89, you know, because I could not stop drinking. And again, if I can somehow rearrange the parts of my story like it was a storyboard, alcohol for a significant period of time was the solution to my living problem. And, uh, and then, you know, something terrible happened, it's happened to everyone here, I'm sure, well, it's, <laughs> or else you're here for a really weird reason, uh, uh, is alcohol stopped working, you know? And, and again, if that, was, if that was 
the end of my story, well, then I would just find another outlet. You know, like, then alcohol would just be another various and sundry character defect in my panoply of tricks to help me get through life without having to reckon with anything. You know, go shopping, gamble, you know. I mean, one time I, I uh, if this is a men's meeting, I'd be a little more specific, but one time I, sa I said to my sponsor, you know, I, I'm having trouble with this particular character defect. It was flirting. I said, I, I flirt all the time. And he said, I said, I feel like it's dishonest. And he said, well, it is dishonest. I said, oh, thanks. He said, uh, uh, but don't worry. When it stops working for you, you'll stop doing it. And I went, wow. You know, because uh, my sponsor has uh, generally two responses to anything I bring to him. One is laughter, and the other is silence. <laughs> and believe me, I much prefer the laughter. Um, because anyway, uh, again, like, um, I'm just so grateful to be sober, you know, and, and be able to express it. But I, uh, once I realized that uh, alcohol was no longer working, that it was not even, forget about fun, forget about fun, um, but that it would no longer shut down my mind, that my ability to think was far exceeding my ability to drink. You know, even in sobriety, like, you know, like the ability to think about myself today dwarfs my ability to drink. You know, sometimes I think anything that separates me from my thinking about myself should be classified as assault. You know, I, I, you know, I just need to think about me. And so uh, uh, the alcohol wasn't working. And um, uh, so I thought I should stop drinking. And that's when it gets really bad. You know, that's when it gets really bad because once I knew that alcohol was no longer working, thank you, uh, came the realization that I could not stop drinking even after I wanted to stop. That's why I never say I gave up drinking. I fought for every drink I ever had. I was separated from alcohol by, um, by God, I think, because it was divine intervention. Because I kept, I can't, look, don't drink and go to meetings is like a fabulous, fabulous suggestion. But if you can only do one of the two, come to a meeting. Because that happened to me. Um, uh, I could not stop drinking. And then, uh, so, uh, one, one Sunday morning, coming back uh, from, from a meeting in Forest Hills, Queens, uh, I had what, knock wood, till today will be uh, the last seizure I've had. You know, I've suffered. I've suffered from the physical manifestations of alcoholism. It's brutal. You know, it's brutal. It's no fun. And uh, um, I was on the corner of 14th Street and 6th Avenue. And I, I often say, uh, when it was a really, really dangerous corner to be on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, there was a time when 14th Street was rough. And uh, uh, all I remember was waking up with a New York City police officer leaning over me. And he said, don't get up, Anthony. And I knew I was in trouble because I had never been introduced to him and he knew my name. So I know this is bad news. And uh, I had a seizure and I passed out. I've come to learn. <laughs> and, uh, and then the ambulance came. Right? It was like January 89. It was freezing. It was freezing. And I remember it was the first time the Saints were ever in the playoffs because I was watching it for a while in the window of Newmark and Lewis on 14th Street and Union Square East. Who remembers Newmark and Lewis? Thank you. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the ambulance came, you know, and the EMT gets out of the ambulance and he asked me that question. 
who's the president? Right? I heard somebody say, yeah, who's the president? And I have to tell you, that was a very, very, very difficult question to answer. Uh, not because I was completely um, bereft of any knowledge, but it was January of 89. So Reagan was still the president, and Bush had not been inaugurated yet. And I remember thinking, the wrong answer could mean a lot of trouble for me. And uh, uh, they didn't really wait, because they just put me in the ambulance, and they took me to St. Vincent's again. And they put me in the corner of the room, you know, next to the screaming baby, which I think they reserved for me. And, uh, 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 and they left me there, you know, because, like, they knew I was a drunk, and, like, drunks are in the way. Let's be real for these, you know, medical practitioners. You're a drunk. Let's get honest about your situation. People here are sick. They're dying. You're drunk. You're <laughs> I relish that a little too much, don't I? Um, and uh, and I'll never forget, my parents came again. And uh, I remember they took me back to Jersey City, you know, that long, silent car ride, you know, where you just think, like, I know, like, I know I can't drink, but I want another drink. And um, they, they took me home, and I remember uh, meeting with my sponsor, and uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know, I've been drinking all along. And he said, I know. And I said, how do you know? And he said, everybody knows. <laughs> I said, how does everybody know? And he said, they just listen to you every time you open your mouth. You know? And he said, but it's okay. He said, we're going to get you into union detox, and you're going to detox, and now you know where to go when you're sober. You know, and I was very, very lucky uh, to be among, to fall into men who, I have to tell you, I don't often say uh, one of the slogans, you know, uh, we'll love you till you can love yourself. Five minutes, I'll never get it all in. Um, but these men, these people, they loved me in a way, you know, it's interesting, in a way that I didn't know love existed. You know, it was foreign to me the way they treated me. And that doesn't mean they treated me easily either, but I like to say for the sake of, you know, uh, brevity, they were men who were armed with the facts about themselves. And they were very generous in um, imparting that experience to me if I would have it. And if I didn't want it, they had no problem, they would go on their way. They were not interested in my estimate of the program of recovery, um, which just saved everybody a lot of time. Because I mentioned as I started, I'm pretty much always wrong anyway. Uh, and it's interesting today. You know, one of the things, you know, be, I'm an old timer now. I, I even feel comfortable saying that because, because my body reminds me. Um, but uh, I have to say, becoming an old timer was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. And uh, um, one of the things that could happen uh, is you get some experience, uh, you know the language, and you can use the tools of the program to avoid problems in your life. You know, alcoholism is a disease of self-deception and denial. And so it's, it's always very important for me, and I usually start with it, but, you know, who knows where I started tonight? I don't even remember. But I usually start with talking about a little bit where I'm at because I don't want to use my history as a way of avoiding what's happening now. Because listen, I'd rather have 34 years than 34 days, but the world record for sobriety is 24 hours. I kid you not. It's not a trite platitude that we dish out to newcomers so we can get them off our back. That's the fact. Um, and uh, um, I've been experiencing some challenges lately in my life. And I call them challenges because I'm in an AA meeting in front of people. If you, if you want to talk to me outside, I'll let you know exactly what it really is. Uh, um, 
And it's, it's interesting. Um, I have to say this, because I know I'm running out of time. Um, there, we always hear in Alcoholics Anonymous to get right-sized. Getting right-sized does not always mean smaller. Sometimes I have to get bigger to meet the appointment. You know, I have to, I have to do things now that an adult has to do, even though it's uncomfortable. And it's almost like a, a blind man's balance. You know, you feel your way through it when you have to tell people, no, you can't do that, and not tell them, no, I curse your whole family, and I never want to see you again. You know, you can just say no. And that's, that's difficult for me. Um, and so I'm learning how the good Lord in his infinite wisdom, and surely I jest, uh, has, I, I listen, I, I said this at the workshop the other night, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a God in my life that I love, even when he's wrong. Um, uh, and so um, uh, I've, had to, I've had to meet, I've had to meet the occasion, and I haven't always done it flawlessly. You know, uh, I'm going to close with this, because I've got one minute. Uh, I've had some interesting experiences lately, because I started to say the 11-step prayer every day. And I see my friend George here. Um, and it's been a really wonderful experience, because the first time, the first time I read that prayer, I thought, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. This step tells me to be everything to everyone. I ain't doing it. And then after, you know, continuing to pray, again, because, you know, I'm usually wrong, and the first idea is always the drunk's idea, so I continue to say it. And then I realize that's not what the prayer is saying at all. The prayer is telling me to meet people where they're at which is exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous does. Alcoholics Anonymous meets us where we're at. And then I learned from sharing it at a meeting that not only is that the right way, and this will be my goodbye, for me to approach the world through the prism of this 11th step, but it's the right way to treat myself, which was a wonderful, wonderful burst of knowledge that to treat myself within the guide works of the 11-step prayer, that where I'm wrong, I can bring the spirit of forgiveness to myself, not condemnation, not hate, you know? And so this experience of Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it really is the most wonderful experience I've ever had. It is the easier, softer way, and I'm so grateful for my sobriety, so thank you.